Welcome to the Expat Birth Podcast, a podcast dedicated to empowering expat families as they navigate pregnancy, birth, and postpartum abroad by sharing resources and stories. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Expat Birth Podcast. I'm Chandler, and I'm joined today by Charlie and Megan. I'm really excited to have another couple on the podcast. They can share both a mom and dad's perspective of what birth abroad um, is like, and just to get um, some healthy expectations for uh, mom and dad who may be listening to the podcast. Um, They will be sharing their story of pregnancy in Asia, um, a relocation in the the latter part of their pregnancy uh, to a place with better medical care. Uh, They have planned C-section, unexpected NICU transfer. Um, We're going to really talk about some um, good um, mental health um, at the end of it. And, um, oh, and I forgot a big portion of hers, which was the hyperemesis. Um, Megan is going to share what it was like navigating hyperemesis in a country that didn't have the best medical care. Um, and what was that, that was like just navigating that emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Um, so Megan and Charlie, thank you so much for coming on. Um, please introduce Um, the audience to yourselves and your family thanks Chandler we're super excited you can say hi too (laughs) (laughs) hey (laughs) um yeah we we're Megan and Charlie I don't know what would you say about us uh yeah so we have uh at this point three uh healthy kids um so we live in currently in in eastern North Carolina uh we're both from North Carolina uh, and so um, we've got a nine-year-old named Kyle, a almost six-year-old named Hudson. And then the pregnancy we're going to be talking about is um, Karis. Our, she's now two and a half yeah, year old spit fire mm. of a child. <laughs> so yeah. we lived we lived in um, Asia. We like to call our country the big chicken um, for three years while Charlie was completing his master's degree. And so it was just a short, fun stint abroad. <laughs> yeah. And I totally left out the whole, like, we know you guys super well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, Marty, my husband and Charlie were in school together. And so that's how we met. And we basically, we had the almost exact same time li- timeline yeah. overseas. That was really cool how the Lord orchestrated that. Yes. We were from very different parts of the world. Um encouraging each other yeah. just keeping up with our crazy expat lives yeah so well um you can start just by telling us like where you were in your expat journey when you found out you were pregnant was this expected was this a surprise um and you can just lead into your early pregnancy sure how far into we were there for three years so this was probably about halfway into our three-year uh, time overseas and and I'll say it was it was planned but real fast um, <laughs> but probably happened a little quicker than we had anticipated <laughs> it happening uh, so yeah I mean it was it was completely planned everything that kind of happened after that I won't say everything but uh, probably about 85 percent to 90 percent of everything that happened after that was probably not planned yeah. 
Um, but (laughs) yeah. So Charlie was a full-time language student as part of his coursework for his master's degree. And I got language via a tutor. So about four, I mean, it was like, as soon as you could figure out that you were pregnant, I was like, "Mm, something's a little off. So I took my language tutor to the pharmacy with me to get a pregnancy test because, you know, you don't learn how to ask for that in (laughs) language learning. And um, yeah, so we learned how to ask for a pregnancy test. And then as soon as we got out of the pharmacy, she turned to me and she said, you know, Megan, this is going to be kid number three for you. Are you keeping it? And I was like, yeah. And so she was like. Oh, and that became like the common question that we would get from our neighbors was like, are you keeping it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's not something you mentally prepare for. Like those cultural, I mean, it makes sense culturally, Mm -hmm. but would not have been something I would have thought about prepping my brain for and prepping a response for. So what was, what was your, did you have like develop a response for that or did you keep it short and sweet? Like obviously, or did you kind of use that as a larger tool I mean it was a huge opportunity to be like you know all people are made in the Imago day and so of course we're going to keep it and they'll be like Mm -hmm. but you already have two kids like they're how could you even think about handling a third um so it just it just became a really good opportunity to share about our vision for you know God's plan for each baby yeah. Did that yeah. ever become like frustrating for you guys? Or was it just kind of like you accepted it as a question that was coming your yeah. way and were ready to? It was just a question it... awesome. for me. Yeah, I think I think it was I don't I don't know if it was just a. I think every time we heard it, it was just another uh, reminder, um, at least in some sense of of the brokenness of the culture there mm. um, and, and kind of their diminished view of humanity and human life. Um, And so um, I guess that was just one of the things for me was just kind of just a constant, that constant reminder of, you know, and and we can talk about, you know, the, you can talk about how still that is viewed here in the U S but even here, it still maintains a bit of heartache and stigma, but there it's just so common and so natural that it was the obvious um, there's, question. There's no yeah. stigma attached to it. It's just kind of, you know, oh, like you're asking, oh, are you just going to have this completely normal procedure, yeah. you know? Mm. And we lived, our apartment complex was literally behind the women's hospital in it would be considered a small town by American standards yeah. <laughs> or by, by our country's standards, probably a decent sized city by American standards. So like we know that like abortions were being performed probably daily from mm. where we were living. So oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So you found out you were pregnant uh-huh. through this great cultural experience at a pharmacy sure. with your language tutor. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think pretty early on, you started, you started feeling oh. the, the morning sickness. Yeah. So let me, let me just preface the rest of the whole story by saying nothing went right. <laughs> we had two pretty normal, pretty typical pregnancies, um, uh, natural births, if you consider an epidural natural. <laughs> yeah, know. that was, yeah, it was in, in yeah. the States. So like no big deal. Um, And so I think the rest of our pregnancy is just like God proving over and over again that he is both 
sovereign and he is both with us um Mm. is is kind of it so i'm a little bit of a drama queen Mm. especially a wuss (laughs) when it comes to medical stuff so four days after the pregnancy test i'm like oh charlie i feel sick yeah, and, and I'm I'm used to her hypochondria a bit. And so <laughs> it's true. Uh, my first inclination was like, seriously, it's like you it's not that fast. Like, are you kidding me? Like it's all in your head. Um but it, then was, it think, was legitimate. I think as concern. the as the like weeks and months drug on that it didn't go away, that I realized, okay, she's she's not I'm not faking, faking it. it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I had had morning sickness with both boys. Um But it was like the normal stuff where, you know, if you have some crackers in your stomach and, you know, you throw up a couple of things and all of that. But HG is on a whole different level. Mm. It's like I it was all I could do to crawl from my bed to the couch each day. And then it got to the point where I couldn't even keep down water. Yeah, Um, that's a problem. Yeah. So our insurance company was fantastic. And we had a Western doctor, basically, that knew the medical system and the language where we were at that we could mm. email. Oh, yeah. That's and awesome. so I emailed her and was like, I can't even keep down water. And she said, you need to go get an IV because dehydration is really the, the biggest thing you have to worry about with HG. Mm. Um, and... Everything I read, maybe Chandler, you can correct this, but it's not supposed to really go away or get better. It doesn't typically like, and usually the longevity is what kind of keys into the diagnosis from what I, from what I understand of it anyway. So I'm guessing it took you a while to get a, did it take you a while to get a formal diagnosis or? um, Yeah, it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. So basically, she just said, go to the women's hospital right in front of your house and get an IV. So my language at that point was about that of maybe a three or four year old. I mean, it was real low and slow. Um, And so I took a friend, an expat friend with me whose language was better. We got the IV. It was a dollar and 50 cents. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) That was so amazing. Um, and went home. And then a couple weeks later, I thought, oh, I need another IV because I still am not keeping much down. And I can do this because I know the system now. So I went into the office um, and it looks like a physical office, like a banker's office or something where we were at. We were in a very rural part. So I think mm. in some of the bigger, more modernized cities, it might be different. We, we were in like the backwoods of West Virginia kind of a thing. <laughs> okay. Or maybe Montana or something, or there's like more cows than people or whatever. Um, so I went into this office and it's the doctor and like five different patients. And basically there's no like HIPAA laws or anything. So everybody's just, they've got their diagnoses being handed out and she's telling advice and all of this. And so finally I cut in and in the language, all I know how to say is, My body doesn't have water. Can you please give me a shot with water? That's all I know. That sounds pretty good. Pretty Uh straightforward. I I was excited about that. She looks at me and bursts out laughing. Oh, no. And I was like, "Uh, uh." so I repeat myself and she just 
goes off in language like 9,000 miles a minute and I'm like I got nothing so I'm I finally call my friend who had gone with me and she translates and um same thing got another dollar 50 IV and went home so the HG days were really really long I couldn't I could not leave my house for weeks and weeks on end Charlie became I don't know yeah, I think trying to juggle like school and I mean, we were very fortunate. We had a house helper. Um, mm-hmm. And so the house helper was able to come in and clean and, and do some grocery shopping and stuff like that for us. And Take the boys outside. Help with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, She's kind of like boys. our grandma. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of this constant, you know, it's it's just a reminder of like how single parents do it. I have no we idea. Um, yeah. You know, because you're you're taking on pretty much everything, um, and so we uh, finally hit on a combination of foods that I could eat. So, do you want to talk about going to the market? Oh yeah, like there's essentially the only thing that we found that she could eat and keep down were essentially like small, like a flatbread, like a flatbread, some steamed corn on the cob, and hmm. these like beef on a stick. Yeah, like. <laughs> Okay. I'm to think what would, yeah, like, I don't know, beef on a stick. Beef on, like, yeah, like, um, kebabs. Oh yeah. Kind of, like, kind of think of like a kebab, except it's just pieces of beef that they roast over charcoal. With, okay. You know, um, so I was going probably two or three days a week. Maybe to... even more than that. I feel like it was every other day. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I was going like two or three days a oh, week, yeah. but I'd get like two days worth at a time. Yeah. And mm. bring it home, and that's what she'd be able to eat. For a few months. Oh, wow. And then finally, right around 22 weeks, it cleared up. Like this was such a God thing because it was not supposed to clear up or it wasn't yeah. really. And it got, it got better all of a sudden. And so I was feeling normal, get into that second trimester where you got some energy back. Yes. I could leave my house. Um, and we were super excited. We had some friends in the capital of our province who were about a month ahead of us pregnant. And so they had recommend going to a clinic. There was a clinic. All of the doctor's offices in our country are housed in a hospital. So there's not no like private offices. They're Mm -hmm. housed inside the hospital. So there's a clinic inside this hospital run by American doctors. That's awesome. Yeah. I, it was huge. So basically on her advice, I went there, they said, we can provide minimal prenatal care for you. Like we can get you, um, some vitamins, we can measure your belly, but we're not going to do like a pelvic exam or anything. And we can do an ultrasound every time that you come. So I went two or three times. It was like once a month. And what this was, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, is this when you guys would like you know, pack up and take a trip up for yeah. these appointments. Yeah. Half. Okay. So yeah. To get there. Um, but it was right across the street from a mall with a Dairy Queen and a Burger King. And so we made a day of it. Yeah. That makes it all <laughs> worth it. So we went to an appointment. It was right around 27 weeks. We walked around the city, ate our Dairy Queen, Burger King, did some sightseeing on the way home. And then the next morning I wake up and go to the bathroom and I have massive bleeding. Um, And so all I could think is, oh my goodness, we're losing the baby. 
right? Mm -hmm. Because that's all I know about bleeding and pregnancy. Yeah. Um, But in God's providence, she just was wiggling up a storm. So thankfully, we had some expat friends in the city. We dropped our boys off with them and then made the hour and a half trek. Meanwhile, we're like calling and emailing the Western doctor that our insurance consults with. And she said, if you have to give birth today, this hospital in the the, um, province capital is the best one to go to. So go there first. Your baby has the best chance of survival. There were no NICUs, no NICUs in our province. That's insane in the whole province. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No NICU. So she said, your baby, if, it, if she's going to be born today, that's your best chance. So we went there and in the providence of God, I mean, where we lived, there were relatively few English speakers anyways. Mm-hmm. They happened to have an intern or somebody that worked in like the office that spoke a decent amount of English. And she essentially became our tour guide. She was in the appointment with me. Um, wow. And they said... All I could understand in her English was, your placenta is in front. And I was like, "Is what does that mean? Yes. <laughs> and she didn't really explain. The bleeding stopped. And they were going to put me under watch. In, and they didn't know what to do with me. So they put me in, like, the recovery area with the newborn babies and moms in my okay. own private room. Well, at least it was private. It was. Um, and then that's when our insurance company started and the Western doctor kind of together started talking about a medical evacuation because once they figured out, oh, it's placenta previa, they said, you're probably going to have to have a C-section. And if baby comes early, we need you in a NICU. And so that's when I basically stayed in the hospital for four days and then Charlie's life got crazy. Yeah. Cause that's, you know, it was that morning you know, after we get to that hospital and, and get her checked out and, and we're getting kind of a diagnosis. Um, and I'm, as she's going through all this, I'm constantly back and forth with the doctor telling the doctor, you know, here's what they're saying. Here's what's going on. Um, and then I start getting phone calls from this other company that our insurance company contracts through for um, medical evacs. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, she she was in the hospital, I think, three or four days. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, our boys are an hour and a half south with some friends. And so now I'm trying to figure out, you know, what do I do with them? How do I go? And so I think for those three or four days, I probably made that hour and a half, one way hour and a half trip, probably two or three times a day. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. And so um, as, you know, and, and you know, you're just trying to. I guess as a, as a husband and a father trying to make sure a, that like my wife is okay, that she's, she's good. Um, because you know, she's in a hospital, her language is limited. Um, it's culturally very different. And then our kids are trying to figure out where's mom and dad, what's going on. Is mom okay. Um, and luckily they were young enough. I don't think they were, I think they were pretty oblivious to everything going on other than they just knew mom was in the hospital, um, because of the baby. Um, and so just trying to navigate all all of the normal kind of travel logistics stuff that you normally have to deal with mm. but now you're dealing it with it by yourself 
where normally I would have Megan with me and, and she'd be helping pack and, and make sure all our yeah. documents were in order and all of that stuff. Um, now I'm having to do it. And then as I'm talking to this company for the evac, they were like, you know, well, we don't know if we're just going to evacuate your wife and then you and the kids will come later in a different flight or if we can get you all on the same flight. And okay, we're going to try to get you on the same flight, but you have to have like all of your bags can only be so many kilos in total. And it was like, you know, we're, we're heading to another country for who knows how many months (laughs) and you're telling me what I think is it was like 25 or 26 kilos like all of our bags had to be underneath under like 25 or 26 kilos or something like that which is what like 50 50 60 pounds um give or take um and so you know I'm back and forth trying to get everything together and they're calling me and they're like well we need to know how much you know how much weight your bags are we need all of the dimensions of all of the bags you had to send pictures send of pictures of everything and oh my word just trying to like take care of what which is a completely different travel thing logistically than we've ever experienced and trying to deal with it all on my own and really trying not to involve megan very much because i know she's got her own stuff that's stressing her and i don't want to add that to her um, basically my stress was trying to hide the pills they kept trying to give me because my western doctor was like this one's not approved by the fda that one's experimental and this one has nothing to do with pregnancy so flush them all and thankfully oh, yeah they don't they didn't watch you so i was like okay leave the room let's flush uh, and then they wanted to feed you certain things that they thought were healthy that were just kind of gross looking and i was like mm good i'm good on this most of the food was delicious i don't know what they're feeding pregnant women though it was not that was all my stress Um, okay i was gonna say too in the providence of god we weren't supposed to have a vehicle either and it just happened to be that some of our friends there had gone back to the states uh and so we had essentially they just let us borrow their vehicle so that would be a pretty sweet vehicle by the way yeah it was like a van (laughs) yeah Yeah. So we were in a lot of ways, kind of the last people to know what was happening because of all of the logistics outside of us that were going on. So Charlie gets a call that, okay, yes, they're going to do the medical evacuation. Yes. It's going to happen today. Go ahead and bring all your stuff, all your people to the hospital. And I'm just laying there. And then all of a sudden, um, so we had planned on giving birth in Bangkok. We had gone ahead and contacted the hospital we wanted to use. We had already gone ahead and contacted a guest house that was close to the hospital that our friends who are a month ahead of us were going to stay in. And we had made arrangements with them. Um, so, so when they were like, where are you going to evacuate to? We were like, let's go to Bangkok. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we, so I was just laying there when all of a sudden busting into my room with this gurney comes a Thai doctor and a Thai nurse. And I don't think they had been informed on my situation because they like busted in there like we were dying, strapped me to this Asian sized gurney. And I'm not an Asian sized person. um, And like rolled me down the hallway. And our culture is so communal that like, as soon as they came one way, everyone heard, oh, someone's getting taken out. And so the hallways are lined with all of these brand new moms, their babies, oh their extended family, watching the very heavy American woman <laughs> gets like rolled out. 
Um, and so I didn't know whether to like beauty pageant wave or like hide my face. It was so, it was crazy. That's a yeah. lot. It was in retrospect, hilarious. Um, I'm so glad they, <laughs> yeah. So they, they send me down and they put me in an ambulance. I think I maybe see Charlie's face once. I, I knew you were there somehow, but yeah, he me, didn't get to ride with me. <laughs> no, like I, they brought the ambulance and then they had hired a driver for me and the kids. And so as they're wheeling Megan out, I'm got all of our bags and our two small kids, which I think were Hudson was three, three and five ish. Yeah. So yeah. they're three and five. I'm taking this three year old and a five year old and all of our bags trying to keep up with Megan. Who's on this stretcher going down and she gets in the ambulance. We get in a different vehicle and off we go to the airport and we still don't know like I'm, i remember thinking how am i going to get through like customs and security like i'm supposed to be on bed rest and not walk how does that work so no one we still didn't know if they were going to be able to get on the flight with with us okay. well in our country evidently they have like a back gate to the airport or something that we went through in the cars yeah i think it's i, I think there was just a different entrance for like maybe um, private private airlines mm. or if it's a different entrance for like flight attendants and pilots to go through when they go through security and all of that stuff. And so we go through this completely different um, gate to get into um, the airport. Um, at this point, we're completely separated. So I have no idea where Megan is. Yeah. Um, I'm still I'm, in the ambulance. <laughs> I'm with the boys with all of our bags and all of our passports and so they get us out and we go into this area and i mean it as crazy as everything's going on medically this is probably the easiest international flight we've ever yeah, taken in true. our lives in terms of getting through like passport control and all of that stuff mm -hmm. um you know because there's no line there's nothing we hand them all of our stuff we go through and we're good and they put us back on a different bus on the other side and off we go again yeah. and at some point the boys end up in the ambulance with me because you had to do something and the thai doctor and nurse speak english very well but do not speak our language and so i'm having to translate poorly <laughs> for, for like the ambulance driver who's a local and like the thai doc it was it was crazy um and my boys by this point it's like nine or ten o'clock at night and oh, so they're tired. Yeah. They see mom strapped to an ambulance. Like, I remember them being on the verge of tears. And I'm like, you're okay. The security guy came in and patted me down to make sure my gurney didn't contain anything it wasn't supposed to. Oh, wow. Um, and I remember asking the Thai doctor and nurse, like, does my family get to go with me? And they said, well, hold on. Let me go ask the pilot. And so they asked the pilot of the plane. And he said, yeah, sure. Sounds good. And so... It was like five minutes before we all got boarded that we knew we were all going to get on the flight. And it was a private jet. Um, they loaded my gurney up you, on there. No, they, they moved me somehow. Yeah, you had to get up and walk onto the airplane. They had a separate gurney, gurney inside, inside that plane. I had to lay the whole time. It was like first class seats. And the Thai doctor and nurse had bought food. And um, Thai people, I think. And our culture, too, in general, just love children, just really, really love children. And so they're like feeding sweets to our boys and oh. ice cold drinks. And yeah. they were just really after they realized I'm not dying, 
they were really kind and really um, in control of the situation. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So it was a couple hours flight. We land in Bangkok about oh midnight. <laughs> midnight. Yeah, something um, like that. They immediately, it takes maybe 15 minutes or so for me to get completely through customs in the ambulance and off. Oh, yeah. Ours was. It was so fast. I, I mean, like I said, this is the best entry into a foreign country ever because we land um, on the tarmac. And so we don't land at like a terminal. We land on the tarmac and we get off the plane onto the tarmac and get onto like buses or vans or whatever. And, and as I'm, I've got our kids, I'm getting into the van, we open the van door and there's a Thai immigration official ready to just stamp all of our passports. Okay. Um, and so wow. we get in the van, we drive off, we, they let Megan goes just straight through the gate and out. They, I don't think they took you. They came anything. in and yeah, they did. It um, was just, it was real fast. Okay. Um, but they drop me and the boys off at a different part of this airport that is notorious for being like backlogged and ridiculous lines um and essentially just walk us through like wow yeah lifting like ropes letting us walk through it was it was pretty amazing and i think that's because thailand has a huge medical tourism industry so you could just tell like our host country doesn't um and so you could tell it was hard for our host country to know what to do with us but it was very easy for the thai government to know what to do with us because they've done this probably a lot well and, and the other side is like those three or four days that we're waiting in our in our home country um for the evac part of it was they had to do all of logistical things of getting the evac ready and so they had to notify hospitals they had to get doctors and nurses to do the evac they had to find an airplane they had to go through all of the logistical stuff to get clearance on both sides in Thailand and our home country for takeoff and arrival and all of that stuff. And so those three or four days were spent really getting all of those logistical things in place, which made kind of that evac as smooth, smooth as it could be as it was. So have good insurance. That's the moral of that story. Have good insurance. Yeah, Cause that could have been a disaster, Absolutely. but yeah. it, it turned to being kind of like your one shining <laughs> moment yeah. in, we, in the whole thing. We would have been bankrupt had we yeah. had this pregnancy in the States yeah. easily. So anyways, so they whisk me off to the hospital. I go in through the ER. They get me booked. They realize, oh, you're stable. And we're just going to keep you here for the next three or four days. And that became kind of just the rest of the season that we're in is I would spend three or four days in the hospital. Charlie and the boys arrive at the hospital at some point. Now it's like one or two in the morning. Yeah. You, how did you get to the guest house? We had contacted the guest house we were supposed to stay at at some point. Yeah, they didn't have a room where we were supposed to go, but they had a separate house that we could go to. And so they just sent me that address. Um, and, you know, you, you know, I can't, luckily we'd been in a foreign country long enough that I had picked up some like travel stuff. And so I was pretty comfortable with just, we got there, made sure she was good. Then we went out and found a taxi and just said, hey, take, take us here uh, i guess praying and trusting that we were going to head to the right spot because we had never been there um, there weren't pictures online or anything you know it's 2 3 a.m in the morning so everything is is it's dark you don't know where you're at and you're just trying to figure out what's going on but yeah i mean 
luckily we got there and it was fine. Yeah. And the guest house said, you can stay in this apartment for a week and then we'll move you into the room we had planned for you anyways, because no one had, had booked it. So that was huge. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So they kept me under a monitor for a couple of days and then basically they said, take it easy. So they didn't say full bed rest. They just said, take it easy. So Mm -hmm. I took it easy for about a week and then we decided we were going a little stir crazy and we were going to go to the mall and just walk around for a little bit. But we were going to walk for 10 minutes, sit for 10 minutes. It was like a taxi the whole way there, taxi whole way back. Well, we do that. I thought I took it easy. And then I wake up in the middle of the night to massive bleeding again. Mm. And we're like, okay, what do we do? So the only thing we could think was to call the ambulance to come get us because we had no hope of finding a taxi down this back alley where the guest house was at three in the morning. Um, Mm. And so we called the ambulance. It came and got me. And I remember telling Charlie, like, you have to stay with our kids. (laughs) Like, I have to go by myself. We can't wake them up. And so that kind of became the routine is I would be okay for a while. I'd wake up in the middle of the night bleeding. We'd call the ambulance. They'd come get me. They would take me to the hospital. They would work to stop the bleeding. And then they would just kind of keep an eye on me for a couple of days. So how long did this go on? So we, um, so we arrived Near the end of October, it was just before Halloween in October, because I remember trying to do Halloween for our kids in this little tiny bedroom. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Like, I'll say it like a small apartment. Um, And then our daughter was born in the middle of December. Um, So about six weeks, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it was probably like every two or three weeks. It was, you know. I would wake up and have a massive bleed. And now with. Chandler, you might know this with placenta previa. It's just, it's a small percentage of people who actually bleed with that. Usually it's, is that right? Well, yeah. And it all depends on like, there's varying degrees of it as well. Um, And so like the more, the more coverage there is over your Mm -hmm. cervix, the more, you know, you know, the more likelihood you could, you could bleed. And so I don't know, did you, do you have complete previa? I don't even term. I don't even know what I had because no one ever really explained it to me. I just kind of had to put the pieces together gotcha. of what was going on. My Thai doctor did say when he first examined me, he said, just so you know, it could move, but you're probably going to have a C-section. And yeah. I was terrified of a C-section because I had a friend in the States who told me in graphic detail about all the ways hers went wrong, which I will oh. not repeat because I think she was an anomaly. No. Um, and two, yeah, like, I know that people love to sh- share those horror stories, but it doesn't help. It's it not helpful doesn't. for moms. And that's all I kept thinking. And so I was terrified. And so I remember praying like, Lord, no C-section. You got to move this thing. Um, And I had peace. And so I thought that meant the Lord was going to, you know, let me have a natural birth. It was not. He just was reminding me he was there and would Mm -hmm. get me through whatever. Um, And so the verse that kind of became the verse I clung to through it all was 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11, which says, after you've suffered a little while he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God be the glory forever. Amen. I was like, all right, we're suffering for a little while, um, Lord. Because I didn't know if my baby was going to die. I didn't know mm. if I was going to die. 
um, because each time I went to the hospital, it took them longer and longer to get my bleeding under control. Okay. Um, and from my understanding, had I been in the States, they would have, they wouldn't have let me bleed more than maybe three ish times from everything I could have read. Um, there was very little information out there on placenta previa with people who had bled. And so I had, I remember scouring chat boards, which is like the worst thing to do when you're pregnant. Yes. But I couldn't find any information. Um, and, and that's all I had. Um, so, so anyways, um, it, it just became harder and harder for, for me to stop bleeding each time. So okay. the last time I went um, it was my, I was supposed to be discharged. I was actually still in the hospital. It was discharge day. And I went to the bathroom and had a massive bleed, had to press the red button in the bathroom. The nurses came in. And by that point I had been on with the HG had been on bed rest for, oh my gosh, like all but a month or two. Yeah. Probably a good six months. Five and, or six months. Yeah. And so they strapped me to the gurney to wheel me up to labor and delivery. And I just was done. I remember just crying and being like, Lord, I'm done. I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And, um, you know, that piece that just makes no sense. It was like, the Lord was just like, you know, I'm here with you. You're not alone. Cause I was like, I'm still alone in the hospital. Like my family is not with me. They can't come with me. I'm done. And he's like, you know, you're not, you're not alone. Um, and so they, they wheeled me up and that time, for whatever reason, I was 30 weeks, um, I, it started some contractions and only one or two, but they were powerful enough that it broke my water. Okay. And so then the doctor said, your water's broke. Basically the time is ticking and we're going to have a C-section um, and we'll get the OR ready for that. And I said, can I call my husband? <laughs> Yeah, And they said, yes, we'll wait on him. Um, and so that family we told you that lived like in the capital of our province back in our home country happened to had just had their baby a couple weeks before that. Yeah, it was it was on like Thanksgiving two or three weeks. Yeah. And they were still at the guest house with us. I mean, this is just God works stuff with stuff like this out They yeah. were in the guest house with their baby. And they said, when it's your time, if we're still here you just get us and so the dad came to stay with our boys so charlie could come it was like nine o'clock at yeah, night it was like eight or nine o'clock at night yeah when you finally got there they yeah. got everything ready in the operating room i had to go to the room by myself the worst part of the whole thing was the spinal block i wasn't prepared mm. for that um and i think like i said i was just emotionally fragile at that point yeah um and so they gave me the spinal block. It hurt um, a lot worse than like an epidural did. And I was in the fetal position and just mm -hmm. sobbing. And I remember the doctor leaning over in his, you know, he had excellent English, but it was accented being like, that kind of hurt, didn't it? And I'm like, it hurt. He's like, yeah. do you want something just to kind of take your mind off of it? I'm like, whatever drugs, just, just <laughs> pump, pump them in. <laughs> Give them all. <laughs> So I think I had a breathing mask on. I don't know if they put something in my breathing mask or they put it in my IV, but I believe I got some sort of narcotic mm -hmm. and it did exactly what it was supposed to. It just made me care less. Yeah. This is the best. Okay. This is a terrible, probably a terrible analogy, but I was not always a Christian. And before I was a Christian, 
I may have imbibed once or twice. And so it was like being drunk where it's like, all you those, don't really like, care. Innovations, yeah. Are taken away. It's just you, kind of, yeah. You know what's up, but you really don't care. Yeah. So terrible example, but so Charlie gets in there and the doctor's like, you ready to go? And we're like, sure. And we're used to my labor with my boys was 33 hours for one and 20 for the other. So we're like, this is going to be forever. And 15 minutes later, we hear a squall and we both kind of look at each other like, it's already done. Yeah. And so they lift her up and Chandler, 35 weeks, she is like the fattest little preemie I think ever existed. She was over five pounds. So she would have been huge had she gone full term. Yeah. Um, So we saw her, we took a picture and then they whisked her away. They had given me steroid shots just in case she came early to prepare her lungs. Mm. I had gotten them every time I went to the hospital. So I, I was on like my fifth round of steroid shots. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't see her again for 36 hours. Wow. I didn't realize that. That's a long time. Yeah. So was that it, just policy? Were you having complicated, like... Was think, what did they I give think, you an explanation? I think we got forgotten about. Well, I mean, um, so I mean, I don't know what it was. So I went with Karis. Um, so Megan, they Megan stayed because they had to do post op and stuff with Megan, and um, and so I went with Karis, and and so um, I got to watch them as they kind of did their thing in the NICU, um, and so I don't I don't know how much of it was um, because she was in the NICU and they they weren't moving her around anywhere. So she was staying in the NICU. Um, and, and so I don't know how much of that was her, them not being able to bring her to, to Megan um, or, you know, Megan, you know, your post-op C-section. Yeah. I don't not being able to get around. I don't think uh, that is standard procedure for but, them, but I'm not sure. Um, Cause the hospital we, we were in was top notch. Like at, I would go back if something terrible goes wrong in the states now like i would fly to back to bangkok to go to that hospital well, they were that good <laughs> um yeah so basically charlie goes home with the boys and they pretty much make a daily visit to come see me mm-hmm. um and the next day i was not prepared for how much time it would take for me to recover from my c-section Mm. I think I was at a disadvantage because I had been on bed rest so long. So I had no abs whatsoever and very few back muscles to support anything. So they made me get up and walk the next day. Um, and I was not very happy at them for doing that. Yes, uh. but like good. The quicker you walk after a C-section, the better it is. But it's definitely not something you want to do. Yeah. And I had never researched it because that was never the plan. Right. Um, so... Yeah. Um, And then there was a series of doctors and nurses that would come in each day to check on me and then to give me an update about Karis in the NICU. And all plastered all over the hospital was was all of these promotional signs about breastfeeding. And so they had a huge wing that was super supportive about breastfeeding. What we didn't realize is our family has always been a formula fed. We're just weird like that from the get go. It was just a personal choice that I always yeah. was, wanted to formula feed. Um, we had made arrangements. Some friends were actually supposed to come visit us in our home country. 
a couple weeks after we got medically evacuated mm-hmm. and they were able to change their tickets and visit us in Bangkok instead. And wow, amazing. they brought us, that was huge because I had arranged for six months worth of formula to be brought from the States. Um, Cause the formula in our home country was not trusted mm-hmm. even by the locals. Yeah. Um, and like baby clothes and all sorts of stuff because we had to leave with limited luggage. So we had nothing um, while we were there. So they happened to come, they brought formula and all of that. So I'm a day out from having the baby. You know, you have all those hormones. You're just kind of emotional anyways. (laughs) I haven't seen my baby in a while. Um, And so all these doctors and there's four nurses and a doctor that come in throughout the day and they're like, hey, let's get you started for breastfeeding. Let's, Let's get going. And I'm like, no, we're going to do formula. And I hit on something culturally for them that was a huge no-no. I mean, it was like as if I was throwing my baby out to the wolves kind of a deal. And Mm. so they were, all of them lectured me essentially on like how I was harming my baby and how this was going to be terrible. And why wouldn't I even try? And, um, and I was like, (gasps) and one of them even starts manhandling me to get my milk started. I'm like, please don't touch me. Yeah, no. <laughs> Don't do that. I'm good. To the point that Charlie came in that afternoon and I was like in tears like, Charlie, are we harming our baby because we're breast- not going to breastfeed? You were so good. You were like, yeah. you can do whatever you want to, Megan. It's like, but you've really thought about this and y- you're you are pretty set on formula feeding. So don't let anybody change your mind if that's what you want to do. That was the yeah, exact well, thing and, to say. Well, yeah. And don't you think, do you think it had something to do with like the shame honor culture that yeah. is Asian? Like they were, they, you know, instead of like, it's your choice. Know, yeah. And for like, let me pass some information. It is your choice yeah. or whatever if they would have, um, but the, they took the shame aspect of we will shame yeah. you to making this choice that we think is, is, is right. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. Which is and- like the worst possible thing to do to a postpartum mom. I mean, yeah. it's pr- horrible anyway, but yeah. definitely yeah. don't put mom. Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't prepared for that because everything else about their medical system and the care we received was top notch. So yeah, everything else was very Western except for that. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah, just a reminder to her of, no, like you, you thought about that and, and just, just having had two pregnancies prior understanding there's a lot hormonally and chemically going on and there's lack of sleep and there's all this stuff going on that just a reminder of you know you no, made- this you've made this decision it was a good decision for our family and mm. so don't, don't do anything right now based on emotion mm. um, mm-hmm. yeah so and charlie's my strong and steady so he's 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 the voice of reason in our family most of the time um yeah so the next day, I basically said to the nurse, can I go see my baby? And she's like, oh, well, yeah, you can. So I learned that if I had just called, a porter would come and wheel me down to see the baby in the NICU. And I was in there. Nothing prepares you for the NICU. It is crazy no. quiet. Mm-hmm. I think I remember that being. And all you're hearing is the beep of a machine. You can barely see most of your baby because there's all these machines hooked up. And I, this is terrible, but I remember it was her 
And then two of these South Asian twins that were maybe like a pound each. And I remember just being so thankful that she was so much fatter because she looked so much healthier than they yeah. were. Yeah. And then feeling bad about that because I'm like, oh, Megan. Um, yeah. So they wouldn't let us touch her or hold her for for a, several days because of all of the stuff. And the NICU doctor always led with like the bad news and then followed up with like oh she's okay and so every time I was like and she's dying oh no she's okay <sighs> um, so we had some issues her lungs weren't developed she, they gave her some ibuprofen to try and close a hole in her heart um, and there were some complications with that um, but then she got better she just she got better so Christmas day our boys finally got to meet her oh, oh that was the other thing so Charlie would bring, once I was discharged, we made a daily trek to the hospital to visit for an hour just so she wouldn't be alone. Mm. Um, and they had nowhere for children. Like the children couldn't go back. So so they had like a little waiting room outside the, the NICU. Um, and I would just like park the boys in there and they would watch the TV. We Bear Bears on the TV yeah. um, while Megan and I went in and visited the baby and, and and one time the nurse was like oh your children are running down the hallway <laughs> so charlie had to like go run after <laughs> oh us. no because they were unsupervised for like an hour yeah um, at three and five yeah um yeah so we made a daily trip down there we actually ended up with this taxi driver guy who like gave us his personal number it was it was crazy so we would just call him and every day he'd come and pick us up which was huge Aww. Yeah. Yeah. And we, so they, they said on Christmas, the boys can hold her and you can bring her home tomorrow. If you show us that you can bathe her and show us that you can feed her. And so that next day they brought us in and showed us how to physically bathe all the parts of your child without drowning them. I'm not sure how our boys ever got clean or didn't die. Cause like it, that was such a good thing we should have learned. And we both were kind of surprised, I think. Yeah, well, like, we'd always, like, so, first of all, we had bathed both of our children, right? So, they got bathed yeah. thoroughly. But, like, the way they showed us how to bathe a baby was, like, revolutionary It was so smart. Us. It um, was so smart. So, I'm glad they did that. Um, but that Maybe you day, need to do a video for us. I don't even know if I remember. Oh, I don't think I can remember either. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was good, though. It was good. Um, we realized on the day we were taking her home when they made us feed her that they actually didn't know what to do with formula babies. I don't think they had ever had a formula baby in their NICU before because formula is so much denser than breast milk is my understanding that you feed your baby so much less. So when our boys were born in the hospital, you're feeding them 15, 20, 25 milliliters. Um, and they gave us for her who's still, you know, she's still not full term um yet a full ounce which is like maybe four times more than what you're supposed to feeding feed her and they basically say when your bottle's done you can leave and we just we sat there for a long time and then finally it occurred to me she can't eat all of this <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so um so finally we just told them we're like it's formula she ate as much as she's going to eat and they were like, oh, okay, well, we guess you can go then. 
<laughs> well, I'm glad they didn't give you a yeah any issues. Yeah. So we got home, and then Charlie had to deal with all the logistics of birth certificates, making yeah. her an official American citizen. Yeah, I mean that was the good thing about the hospital we were in too is they the hospital staff would come and do passport pictures at the NICU. So they would come and do those pictures. So we didn't have to do it. They had services at the hospital where we could take care of all of our visa stuff. Um, They were fully equipped for medical tourism. Um, You know, they had services where we could get um, her. So she, she does not have a U.S. birth certificate. She has a Thai birth certificate that's, um, in Thai, and they you could pay to have an official translation made, which you needed. So she's got that, which we needed to send to the U.S. Embassy. Um, and so the hospital we were at took care, pretty much took care of all of it. You just had to make sure you did the right paperwork. And they came and took did all of that for us. Um, but then in terms of getting, you know, um, all of the documents that we needed, um, and then making sure we got it to the embassy and filed and sent off. Um, that was kind of the next kind of logistical hurdle. And um, Charlie took care of all of that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm Yay, again Charlie. having to take care of all of that because my wife. I'm still basically <laughs> on bed rest. Like I can't. It took me the full six weeks before I could even get out of bed on my own in a timely manner, I would say. Yeah. Um Definitely with everything like your whole pregnancy leading up to that you just yeah. were yeah conditioned to have major abdominal surgery so yeah that. yeah so we spent another it was probably like from the time she was born another six weeks six to eight no it had to be more than that i think it was eight weeks before we went home no was it about it six weeks okay yeah. he's my fact checker <laughs> um so anyway, we, we went home and I recovered from surgery and we brought our baby home eventually. Well, in that time period, I noticed I was having trouble falling asleep at night. And then I was still waking up in the middle of the night. And as I'm waking up, I'm feeling like I'm bleeding. And I would go and check and I'm not bleeding at all. And, you know, like I had like what had sent me to the hospital so many times previously. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what in the world is going on? Well, in the providence of God, I'm on Facebook. I've got a friend who has, she had just started an organization in Eastern Tennessee, educating moms about postpartum mental health. And she had started posting about the different, they're called perinatal mood disorders. Mm. And I just happened to catch one of her posts And it says postpartum PTSD, and it lists all of these symptoms. And my eyes bug out of my head because I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is me. This Mm. is exactly what I'm experiencing. And so I had a friend who had served as like a mental health counselor on Zoom from our home church. And so I made a, I set up a meeting with her um, and I'm like, Amber, this I've read about postpartum PTSD. Let me tell you what's going on. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. I feel like I'm bleeding. I'm having these like false sensations and I can't get to sleep because of it because I'm so scared I'm going to bleed even though I know I physically can't bleed. Um, And so she said, yep, Uh, let me just double check, but I'll look into it. And she came back and she's like, yeah, Megan, I think you have postpartum PTSD. Um, Basically, as she explained it to me, is 
my entire nine, well, I guess eight months, eight months of pregnancy was under stress because of the HG to begin with. And then Mm -hmm. all of the bleeding. And then in that short, brief five weeks where I was feeling good, but we hadn't gone to Thailand yet. We had two earthquakes in two nights in our high rise apartment in the middle of the night. Mm. Um, They were level five, which is um, hard enough to be crazy scary. Like you think you're going to die and not hard enough to do much damage. So um, I, I lived for eight months under stress. And what that did is it rewired my brain so that Anytime I felt threatened, I would slip into essentially a panic attack, you know, like your, your mm-hmm. mind races, your heart, chest pains. Um, and it would take a probably a good solid 20 minutes or so to come down off of that. Completely illogical <laughs> and irrational. Like I'm not, I'm obviously not bleeding because of pregnancy anymore. Right. But that would happen. And that happened the entire time we were in Thailand. And when we went back to our home country, the waking up in the middle of the night because of bleeding went away. And so I was like, oh, got this. No, did not conquer it because my brain was rewired. So what started happening is my brain started saying, oh, you're having an earthquake. So it was still that association with being in bed something bad happening because we were asleep when the earthquakes happened Mm -hmm. and so it got so bad that like any shaking of the bed at all so charlie like turns over in the middle of the night or sits down on the bed or you know Mm. my kids bump the bed and there's that panic um automatically yeah i guess you failed to mention about what about no i think early on in your pregnancy we had two earthquakes Um, yeah i mentioned that just a minute ago okay sorry (laughs) So, so yeah, so that my, my counselor was so good about giving some strategies. Basically she said, ground yourself. So think about all of your emotion, not emotions, your senses. What do you hear, see, touch, smell, that sort of thing. And then she said, tell yourself the truth. You are okay. You are not in an earthquake. I would sometimes, I would often turn to Charlie and be like, is the house shaking? And he would be like, no, like, okay, we're not having an earthquake because my body was saying we're having an earthquake. Yeah. The house is shaking. You're in danger. Um, and so because it rewired my brain, I actually still struggle with that today, but not to the degree that it was before. It's more of a nuisance now. Um, most often it's, I'm sitting in my recliner that kind of rocks back and forth and my kids brush it or the dog sits next to it and it just wiggles enough. Um, that it'll do like a little mini panic attack, but I have a feeling I'm going to probably struggle with that forever, as far as I can tell. It's just, it's better now. It's more of a nuisance rather than an everyday so thing. So when you guys were going, like, obviously y'all had a lot going on during this pregnancy. Did you, were you, did you have active counseling to kind of unpack, dear, unpack different things during your pregnancy? Or is it just kind of like maybe you touch base with, you said Amber, like a couple Mm -hmm. times? um, Or was it mostly you started postpartum to connect? Oh, gosh. 
I don't even remember. I know once I thought it was PTSD, she had been like a, she had been praying for us anyways, because she's like a friend first Mm -hmm. and then counselor second. So I think she had known all along what was going on. Um, But honestly, we, we didn't have a whole lot of counseling. I don't think you had really any um, throughout it. So it was just once the PTSD popped up that it started to become like a let's meet and on zoom and chat every week or two weeks. And she let me set how often I needed to speak with her. Gotcha. Do you think just throw just throwing this out there? Like, do you think that if you would have, like, if you would have done that again, you would have been more proactive early on to kind of slowly try to unpack all these, like the stress with the hyperemesis, the, yeah. stress with the earthquakes that, you know, like before to help it not like, I feel like some of it was, I mean, what it sounds like is just kind of like you kept adding onto this mound of stress yeah. and then it just released in this physical response of yeah. the anxiety. Yeah, I think it would have been helpful. And so if I guess maybe the advice to any listeners would be if you can reach out to someone with counseling, if you're having any sort of pregnancy. Yeah, because I think I mean, I think partly in our situation is everything happened so quickly and things were changing so much. And Mm. at least on my end, I was constantly um, reacting to things going on. I didn't have. I don't feel like I had that opportunity to be proactive because mm. I didn't know if like, you know, I didn't know I, there was no way for me to know that, Oh, tomorrow Megan's going to, you know, have it, have an issue and she's going to have an ambulance and I'll have the kids again for two or three days by myself and figure out meals and all that stuff. Mm. Um, that it was really hard in the moment to be thinking through all of that stuff. Cause you're just constantly trying to react to, constant sea of change mm. um that i think that's that's good advice of yeah. maybe having just just understanding that and maybe having that in place to be yeah. able to do that i will say i think up to that last time i think the reason why i hadn't cracked emotionally <laughs> um is because we had downloaded the marco polo app which is like video messaging and mm. our small group back in the states the ladies got together and basically all made this marco polo group and they would message me. And so like, it's 3am in Bangkok, but it's like the middle of the afternoon in Raleigh. And so, um, and so that was a huge lifeline for me. Cause I would get on the video messenger and be like, y'all, I'm in the hospital again. Like, this is what's going on. And they would all come back. I'm praying for you, Megan. And here's what we're doing today. And they'd be like, what do you need? I'm like, I just need some normal. And so they'd take video of like their kids playing at the park or like going to the grocery store. And some of them would drive with their GPS on as they're videoing. And I'm like hearing familiar street names and things like that. And that was just such a huge ministry to me because Mm -hmm. those hospital walls, I mean, you can only watch so much TV. You can only scroll scroll so much social media before it's just, it wears on you. Um, So that was a huge ministry to me uh, while I was in the hospital. Yeah, that's a question I always ask, too, is what what's one thing you would recommend for people who are supporting expats abroad? Um, yeah. That's a, just a unique way to love it. And that's a That was a great recommendation. Marco Polo. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. You introduced me to Marco Polo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a lot. 
it girl I it still feels like someone else lived it like when yeah. I tell it I feel like I don't it's like a story that someone else lived I don't know yeah well thank you for sharing it um <laughs> taking the time to share it if before I wanted to give you an opportunity to share about a new kind of um ministry slash business that you've launched as in response to your expat living that has nothing to do really with um, birth. But (laughs) before we jump in on that, because I I definitely want you to share that because it's such an awesome idea. Um, Is there any kind of last minute thoughts, recommendations, um, anything like that, that you would like to share before we move past um, birth? Do you have anything, Charlie? No, I don't. I don't know that I have anything. I would say one thing that became crucial period to expat living was we had, obviously we had our family back in the States. Our family couldn't come be with us postpartum um, for several reasons. They wanted to, but they couldn't. And um, we had, so they supported us the whole time, but we also had this couple from our church that was like our champions and they kept our family's name and face before the people of our church. Cause it's really mm-hmm. easy to be forgotten, right? America's busy, crazy busy. Yeah. Um, and so I think that if you can identify who's going to be that, that couple for you before you go overseas, that's not related to you. Mm. Sometimes there was stuff that I could tell them that I hadn't figured out. How do I tell my mom yet? You know, Um, because they're going to handle it differently than she handles it. Um, Or my dad, probably more my dad, my Mm. mom. Um, And so that was huge. We never felt forgotten while we were overseas. Yeah. The big deal. Yeah. Great recommendation. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, so now I'm just going to give you the floor <laughs> and give us a, um, so I'll like preface this by saying, so basically Megan is my educational counterpart, I would say. <laughs> uh, I think um, we saw holes in two different areas of expat life. Mine was support for pregnant women. Um, and then she just saw kind of this hole for um, moms trying to navigate uh, home education for their yes. kids abroad, um, that which stemmed from their personal experience from, I don't know what, like the first couple of months you hit the field, yeah, girl. Um, it went south. So um, yeah, I just wanted to give her a chance to share about the nearly free homeschool and what it is and how you can find her. Yeah. Thanks, Chan. Yeah. Um, so I won't, that's a whole nother long story of how that got started, but basically yeah. we weren't going to homeschool and then we had no other options to homeschool and then I loved it. So in the Lord's wisdom, he led us to homeschooling abroad and it's incredibly difficult to figure out how to homeschool when you've not prepared for that and you don't have an English library or fairly easy access to uh, English books. And so the Nearly Free Homeschool was born out of me just searching the best of the internet and finding all of these amazing public domain textbooks from like 1910, 1920, and then supplementing with amazing curriculum um, from back home that my mom would ship me. And, um, and yeah, so it's, it's a business now. It's a homeschool consulting business. So 
if you are like a homeschool mom or if you're going to be a homeschool mom and you have no idea what to do, I chat with moms, help them get a good layout. And then more than that, for expat moms, I help you either source books from the public domain that you can go print at a print in your neighborhood for super cheap and have a physical copy. And I'm just about to launch next month. It's called the Expat Homeschool Bookshelf. Basically, there's a whole bunch of ladies in my community who have already used curriculum and supplementary books and things like that. And rather than sell them, they've donated them. And so I'm go- this expat library is essentially free homeschool books. All you guys have to do is tell me what you want and then pay to ship them to a friend who's coming to visit you or ship them across the ocean. And so it's just a way to serve expat moms because homeschooling is expensive. Homeschooling plus paying for shipping is crazy. Um, yes. So we want to give you books for free and uh, just have you cover the shipping costs. So you can find me on Facebook. That's the easiest way. Facebook.com slash the nearly free homeschool. Um, or yeah, that's probably the easiest way to do that. Yeah. And just so everybody understands, what is your professional background? Oh, yeah. Before we went abroad, I was a high school history teacher for 10 years and wrote curriculum with the state of North Carolina and for Wake County um, as well. So and then I teach I now teach online. Um, So I have I figured this out. I've taught every single grade at some point in since I turned 18. So that's pretty crazy. I know kindergarten, even through a couple of like element, not elementary, um, university students, like lower level university. Yeah. So you come with lots of experience. I just want to make sure we got that in there. You aren't just some (laughs) random lady who decided to start doing homeschool consultations. She, you, um, you know, your stuff and, um, it was really cool. I got to be kind of, um, my guinea pig. (laughs) I was. Yes. Um, she's has amazing um, information and very practical, which is I'm a practical person. So I appreciated that. But it was just really cool to kind of see from the outside, like her fall in love with um, homeschool mm-hmm. as a somebody who hadn't really um, that hadn't been on your radar before. And um, mm-hmm. how cool that you found out how to source it while overseas yeah. for on a very limited budget so yeah. um please go check megan out um and if you can't find it for whatever reason should be easy to find just let me know and i can point you in the right direction um you also have a group correct a yeah. Facebook group that they could join yeah we call it the homeschool mama collective um and basically it's just for new homeschool moms and to get advice from um seasoned homeschool moms so. Yeah, which is kind of the counterpart to the virtual village. It is. So we We're just kind of life. mirror each other the whole <laughs> way through. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's all we have today. We've given everyone quite an earful, I think. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Thank you guys so much for joining us, Megan and Charlie, um, sharing baby Karis's birth story and a little bit about the nearly free homeschool. Um go check out Megan and um, do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, but thank you so much. And if you, I guess maybe I will add this. If you think you have like perinatal mood, whatever, I'm happy to get you connected to um, the 
my friend who has her, it's called cherished mom as well. So I'm happy about any of that. You are welcome to ask Chandler to forward along my information and I'm always up for a good chat. Yeah. Megan is a total open book. So if you just need somebody to talk with, she would be a, a great mom to mom resource for sure. Well, thank you, Megan. And thank you to everyone who has joined us for this rather long, but awesome podcast. Um, if you are listening and just joining us, please feel free to um, check out any of the former podcast episodes. We have a wide variety of pregnancy and postpartum experiences so far, and I look to add a lot more in the near future. Um, if you are liking this podcast, if you would not mind going to your platform of choice and giving a rating that helps other parents and expat families um, find this podcast a lot easier. So thank you guys so much and we'll see you next time. You can find me online at theglobalbirthcoach.com. On social media, you can find me on Pinterest, Instagram, and Facebook at The Global Birth Coach. On the Global Birth Coach Facebook page, there is an affiliated closed group called the Virtual Village, and that's where I'm active most often. This group is designed to be a place where expat families can come together to encourage each other and share resources as they navigate pregnancy, birth, and postpartum abroad. Come and join us. We would love to have you there.